Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you again. We bless you, Lord God, for your goodness, your tender, loving mercies towards us. Thank you for another day. We lift our voices and we declare how good you are, how wonderful you are, how marvelous you are. Thank you for this privilege to come before your presence. We bless you, we honor you. We praise your name. We exalt you. We thank you. Thank you, Father God, that we are able to stand this morning to declare forth your praise and to bring forth your word and to exalt your holy name. Thank you, Father God, because it is unto you that our garden is. And so we bless you, Father God. Thank you. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so welcome this morning uh, to this live services coming to you from World Outreach Church for All Nations in Lawrenceville, Georgia, where we are still observing the social distancing. And this morning, I want to bring a good, happy, wonderful Mother's Day to all the mothers that are tuned in today. We appreciate you. We honor you. We salute you. We thank God for you. In Jesus' name, and we pray that today will be a very glorious day for you, that you'll be filled with all the blessings of God and the abounding grace of God towards you will manifest itself in Jesus' name. And so, again, as usual, we are coming to you uh, this morning, and we just want to welcome all of our friends and families that's joining us in various platforms and devices we are at WorkFan, where we are building strong families and serving global communities. Amen. And so this morning, I'm going to continue from what I started a couple of weeks ago, dealing with, speaking on the benefits of being seated in Christ. The benefits of being seated in Christ. The Bible tells us in Psalm 68 that God daily loads us with benefits. We are reminded again in Psalms 103 verse 2 that we should not forget God's benefits towards us. So last week, I addressed two of those benefits. Number one, I said, in Jesus, as we are seated in him, we do not lack. In other words, it meets our needs. And number two, I wanted to address the fact that in Christ, we have rest and we have peace. And so this morning, I'm going to flow on from Psalms 23. That's where I've been teaching from, Psalms 23, in verse 3 this morning. Psalms 23, verse 3, it says, He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So there are two benefits in that Psalms 23, verse 3. I'm going to address the first one now, and then perhaps on Wednesday night, I will address the second one. So the one I want to address this morning is the fact that the Bible says, He restores my soul. Now, that word restore, means to return someone or something to a former or original condition, place, or position. Again, the word restore means to uh, return someone or something to a place, uh, a condition, or a position that they were before. You know, as I was preparing for this message last night, I stumbled across an article in Christianity Today. And that article was describing a lead pastor who had planted a church in St. Louis, Missouri in 2002. And the church began to grow very rapidly. So much so it became a mega church that was meeting on six uh, campuses all over St. Louis area. And then around 2015, 2016, 
uh, this pastor got in serious trouble. He got in trouble because, number one, as this church grew, his platform grew faster than his character. I need to say that again. As the church began to grow, the platforms that became available to him, speaking engagements, talking to leadership, traveling around the world, and all of those things that come around, along with successful ministry, quote and unquote, as the platform grew, um, rather, as the church grew, his platform grew bigger than his character. In other words, things was happening to him that he did not have the character sufficient to mount or to sustain. So what happened is devotion or his personal relationship with God began to suffer because he focused more on ministry than ministering. I can take a silent moment right there. <laughs> he focused more on the programs within the church than his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember John 17, 3, the Bible tells us what eternal life is all about. The Bible says, this is life eternal, that we should get to know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So our primary purpose for existence is not ministry, it's not programs, it's not platforms, but knowing Jesus and growing in our relationship with him. But anyway, back to this story in Christianity today. I don't want to mention this pastor's name. So in 2016, he began to get into uh, some emotional affairs, uh, uh, abandoning some leadership principles, and consequently, as a result of that, he was fired from the church that he started. Now, why am I telling us this story? I'm telling us this story because we are dealing today with Psalms 23, verse 3, where it says, he restores my soul. So for this pastor, his restoration took 28 months. 28 months journey back into the community from which he was expelled. And he never came back to retain the position as a lead pastor. Now, for me and you, restoration takes place at two levels. Two levels. Number one, when something happens to us as a believer, we can be restored back to God when we repent of that situation almost immediately. However, when you look at your horizontal relationships, your community of faith, your family, your friends, your company, that can take years, and sometimes it's never fully completed or done. I don't ever want us to forgive, forget that. Restoration takes place at two levels. Number one, you get your relationship restored with God. That is not a big deal. You repent, God forgives you, you are restored. But that does not mean that you automatically is readmitted where you left off. That takes work. It takes effort. It takes hours and hours and hours of counseling for you to ever regain the trust you lost from whatever happened when it happened. Amen? Now let's go to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Let's look at David's life here for a moment. He leads me in green pastures. He restores my soul. Okay, Psalm 51. This is a typical example in the scripture of what happened. Let's read from verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, 
according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear the joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. That's enough. So right there in Psalm 51, we see David relieve his experience when he committed his sin with Bathsheba. You saw how miserable he was and through all of those verses we just read, pleading with God and asking God to restore to him the joy of his salvation and to uphold him by his generous spirit. So we see an example there of a sheep or a person who, due to some uh, occurrence or incident or sin or act of uh, carnality in their lives, fell and is now asking to be restored. Amen? So now back to the story in Psalm 23, back to Psalm 23 now, when uh, David is telling us this, so he said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall know one. He makes me to lie down green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Now in verse 3, he restores my soul. For sheep, natural sheep, they get in distress, they get cast down, and when that happens to them, they turn on their back and cannot get up again by themselves if they're not helped. No, so, so this is the thing with sheep. Sheep get cast down, and they get cast down for one reason and one reason only. They, they get cast down when they wool on the sheep is so thick that it adds an extra burden on them and it makes it extremely difficult for the sheep to move. And then when, when they move around, they catch debris and uh, dirt and that makes it very, very distressing and so they get cast down. Now, when they get cast down, when the ship gets cast down, a natural ship, when they get cast down, they literally turn over on their back and they cannot get up on their own. Now, this is amazing. You need to really understand this. When a ship gets cast down, it's turned on its back with its feet in the air, frantically beating the air, trying or attempting to help itself, and usually they can never do so. Now, this is a biggie for me and you to learn something from. Because the reason the ship gets cast down, again, like I said, is because the wool or their skin, the wool on, on their skin is so thick. Now, the significance of that is wool in the Bible represents self 
or the flesh. Wool, biblically, represents self or the flesh. In other words, when you get too much self involved or too much flesh in anything, you're going to get cast down. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 44. Ezekiel 44. Wool represents self or the flesh. Ezekiel 44, verse 17. You'll see what the scripture says about this. Ezekiel 44, 17. Okay. All right. This is concerning the high priest. And it shall be, whenever they enter the gates of the inner court, that they shall put on linen garments. No wool shall come upon them while they minister within the gates of the inner court or within the house. Verse 18. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen trousers on their bodies. They shall clothe themselves with, no, rather, I'm sorry. They shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. Whoa. So the priest was admonished in the Old Testament that whenever the priest went to minister before God, the priest could not wear wool. Why? Because wool causes sweat. So God is here telling us the, signific the significance of wool as a fleshly symbol or as something that represents the flesh or the self because self sweats. When you are moving in the spirit of God, you don't have to sweat it. But when you are doing anything to arm your flesh, definitely sweat is something that happens. So I'm trying to equate the wool on the natural ship that causes it, that causes it to get downcast with the fleshly activities in the life of a believer that also results in the same thing. So believers like the natural ship are also cast down or weighed down by self or indulgence in the flesh. Go with me to Romans chapter 8 and give that to me in the TPT, please. Romans chapter 8. So if wool will cause a sheep to be downcast, then a believer also today can be downcast. Romans chapter 8, give me give verse 5. A believer can also be downcast by functioning, living in the flesh, or living in, in, in self-life. Those who are motivated by the flesh only pursue what benefits themselves. But those who live by the impulses of the Holy Spirit are motivated to pursue spiritual realities. For the mindset of the flesh is what? Death. But a mindset controlled by the spirit finds life and peace. In fact, the mindset focused on the flesh fights God's plan and refuses to submit to his direction because it cannot. Verse 8. For no matter how hard they try, God finds no pleasure with those who are controlled by the flesh. Let me just stop right there for a minute. Remember how we started this. A sheep is downcast because it's heavily burdened and weighed down by the wool on its body. That wool represents, for me and you, fleshly activities or activities, activities that's driven by self. 
So now the Bible is telling us as believers that you and I cannot please God as long as we live in the flesh. Not only that, walking in the flesh, the Bible says, leads to death. Now, what is flesh? Very simple definition. I mean, I know there are a lot of theologians. They have all kinds of uh, ways to describe this uh, concept, but I just want to make it as simple as possible. Flesh simply is using our human resources apart from God to meet needs in our life. Flesh is using our human natural resources apart from God. That is very important to, to underline that, apart from God, to meet our needs. A good example of that would be Adam and Eve. We read the story in Genesis chapter 3, I believe. If I let, let's just go there very quickly. Let me find it and let's go there quickly. Adam and Eve. Chapter 3, uh, verse 7, Genesis 3, 7. Thank you. Then the eyes of both, both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Okay, so they knew they were naked. What did they do? And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. In other words, they saw that there was a problem. They had a need, a need that they needed to be covered. But rather than depending on God to do the covering, they resorted to, doing, to using their own natural human resources, cut a tree, get the fig leaves, and use the fig leaves to cover themselves. Flesh. And we know the outcome of that. It didn't amount to nothing. God had to come back in Genesis 3.21 and actually kill an animal and cover them. Amen? So anytime you and I resort to natural human resources to meet our needs, apart from God, we are in the flesh. Now, go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Mm, no, 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 before I do that, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let me go to Galatians chapter 1, chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through to 21. Galatians chapter 5. I just want to show us the manifestations of the works of the flesh for a quick minute before we move on. Thank you. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, how do I know if I'm living in the flesh? How do I know if I'm operating in the flesh? How do I know that the downcast I feel, the distress I'm feeling, the disconnect I'm feeling with God, or all of these things that happen, how do I know that I am in the flesh? Here it is. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, reveries, and the like. So right there, Paul gives us a catalog of what the works or, or the manifestations of the flesh are like. Now give me verses 24 and 25. Verses 20, same chapter. And those who I Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we are really in Christ and seated together with him, the things we just listed, are not, they are not showing up in your life. Verse 25, if we live in the spirit, 
let us also walk in the spirit. Good. Now, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 in the Amplified Classic there. Amplified Classic, AMPC. Amen. Now, I want to address this because there are a lot of people that say, well, you know, I'm living under grace. Uh, it shouldn't matter. Um, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I want you to know, living under the covenant of grace is absolutely no excuse to live in the flesh or under sin. I want to make that absolutely loud and clear. Living under the covenant of grace is no reason or excuse to live in the flesh or to live under sin. Here we go. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 12. Watch this. It is a reason for pride and exaltation to which our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world generally and especially towards you. With devout and pure motives and godly sincerity, not in fleshly, go on. Did you get the right scripture? Second Corinthians 1, 12. It is... Uh, let, me, let me find it. Excuse me for one second here. Wow, I thought I had it marked. Gave you the wrong scripture. Is it First Corinthians? Oh, oh, oh. Second Corinthians 1. Yeah. Second Corinthians 1 12. What am I missing? For this reason? Huh. That's incorrect. Uh, it's 1 12. Give it to me in the NLT. But I think, I really think it's the Amplified Classic. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's the, um, give it, give, go back to Amplified. This is bizarre. Pardon me? Give me my iPad, please. I'll give me an iPad. Oh, uh, you got it? Yeah, why is it so different? In Amplified, classic. Wherever you guys got that stuff from, man, that's, that's fake news up there. <laughs> My goodness, I'm going, I'm saying, wait a minute, what's going on here? It is a reason for pride and exaltation to which our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world generally and especially toward you with devoid and pure motives and godly sincerity. Not fleshly, not in fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. This is where I'm going. By the grace of God. Now, look in parentheses at the definition of the grace of God. Which my version in this house at work one is not showing. Praise God. That one must be made in uh, Southeast Asia somewhere. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to name the name of the country. But, <laughs> but look at the grace of God here in parentheses. The unmerited favor and merciful kindness by which God 
exercise, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ and keeps, strengthens, and increases them in Christian virtues. Whoa. This is a biggie. So, in the past, I will have defined grace as unmerited, undeserved, and unearned favor. And those things are true. The only challenge is it's incomplete. That's an incomplete statement. And that's, that's what most of us, for the most part, have run with as the definition of grace. Unmerited, unearned, undeserved kindness and favor of God. Yes, those things are true, but it's just not complete. Okay? Because here, the Bible tells us in the Amplified that that unmerited favor and mercy of God, that God through that exerts his holy influence upon our souls, turns our souls to Christ, keeps, strengthens, and increases them in Christian virtues. I've said this before, and I'm saying it again. If you are not growing in Christian virtues, you have not contacted grace yet. Because we cannot continue to use grace as an excuse to live in the flesh and take this liberty as a location to sin. It's just, it's, that's just not God's intention. We receive the grace. It's unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor so that God can exert his holy influence upon our souls to strengthen us, to increase us so we can produce Christian virtues. Absolutely. So we must understand that grace is it's not just God's agenda, just for me, just so I can say I have favor, I am blessed. All of those things are true, but more importantly, God's grace to me is for God's agenda in me to be manifest. So I'm saying that to say we cannot continue to placate living in the flesh living ungodly and sinful lives because we are under grace. Now, the truth is, those that are actually working in grace, fully understanding grace message, they understand that sin no longer has any dominion over them. Amen. I, I, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm taking the time to address this very fully this morning because, yes, it resources my soul. That is a fact. But I must also understand I have a responsibility. In Numbers 32, verse 23, the Bible says, a man's sins will find him out. Notice what it says. It's not God finding you out, but your sins will find you out. Okay, okay, let me say that again. God is not going from street to street, house to house, knocking on doors. 36, 7, fair hill drive. Did you sin today? 3609, did you say? No, God is not doing that. So God is not sniffing around trying to find sin. Jesus took care of sin. Amen. He's a complete final sacrifice for sin. So God is not dealing with that in that, in that aspect. However, in Numbers 32, verse 23, Numbers 32, verse 23, but if you do not do so, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure 
Your sin will find you out. Even though God is not looking for it, he's not clamoring over it, I am telling you today in Jesus' name that your sin will find you out. Galatians 6, 7 tells us that whatsoever a man sows, he shall also reap. Now, go to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19. Jeremiah 2, 19. Hallelujah. Look at what it says. Your own wickedness will correct you, and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore, and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God, and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. So now I'm saying this, even though Clearly, one of the benefits of being in Christ is the fact that he restores us, which means he forgives us, he cleanses our sins. But I'm just saying to you, you and I do not have the liberty or the luxury of living a careless lifestyle just because he cleanses or forgives you. You don't have that liberty. Let me take you through a catalog and just show you a few things in the scriptures. Uh, let's go to Genesis chapter 12. Verse 16. Genesis 12, 16. Okay, so here is Abraham, the friend of God, who God's blessed. He's in Egypt. And the Bible says he was afraid for his life and told a lie in Egypt and said that Sarah, his wife, was actually, in fact, his sister. Verse 16 of Genesis 12. He treated Abraham well for her sake. Watch this now. He had sheep. Oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. Now go to chapter 16, verse 1. Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. Keep in mind what we just read. Now let's go to 16, verse 1. Now watch this. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Oh, where did Hagar come from? Egypt. Where did Abraham get Hagar? Egypt. When did he get her? When he lied to the king in Egypt. Genesis 12, 16 says, go back to Genesis 12, 16. Genesis 12, 16 says, when the king was trying to get things right, what did he do? He treated Abraham well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants. That was the gift, that was the parting gift that the king, that Pharaoh gave to Abraham. Male and female servants, of which among those female servants was what? Hagar. So God never fought Abraham about his life. But his sin found him out. Because Hagar became the mother of Ishmael. You know the rest of the story. We are still dealing with it today. How about Genesis chapter 42? Genesis chapter 42, verses 21 and 22. Genesis 42, verses 21 and 22. Now, this is a very beautiful story here. We know Jacob's, I mean, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Uh, they went home and told a lie to their father that a, uh, a lion or a wild beast had torn Joseph to pieces, dipped his uh, garment in, a, in blood, 
to show the father as proof that they were telling the, the truth. Now, years later, then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we will not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against this boy, and you will not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of me. Question. Who was asking them this question? Nobody. This is years after the event, years after they committed the offense or the sin. They are now back in Egypt in the presence of Joseph. They know or recognize that Joseph knew or heard what they were saying. And they are talking among one another. Ah, oh, this sin we committed 10 years ago. Hey, it's coming to roost. Why? Because God's word will not fail. Your sins will find you out. That's what the Bible said. Amen? So we need to be very careful. Even though God forgives us, we cannot continue to live carelessly because there's a rank, there, there are repercussions. There are repercussions to everything we do. Now, going back to the ship now, it struggles in its own strength trying to get back up because it's cast down and its legs is just frantically uh, swinging in the air. It's exhausted. But one thing about that ship that me and you must learn from Number one, the ship can either try or attempt to get up on its own strength, or number two, it blips, getting the shepherd's attention to come to rescue it. And ultimately, the ship is rescued because it calls out to the shepherd. So for you and I, our restoration begins when we recognize that whatever we've been involved in or doing is not right. We acknowledge the fact that of our own and by our own effort, we cannot fix it. Remember, Adam? Fig leaf system don't work. It doesn't. That's why God has given us his spirit. So the first thing we must do is Repent. Repent not meaning uh, being sorrowful or being sad or, or, or begging God to do something. No, no, no. The New Testament definition of repentance is to change your mind and turn towards God. Acts 26 verse 2, please. Acts 26 2. No, Acts 26 20. Acts 26 20. We acknowledge that the behavior or the things we are doing, the fleshly act, the scene we are living in is grievous before God. So Acts 26, 20, but declared first to those in Damascus and Jerusalem and throughout all region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should what? Repent. What does it mean to repent? To change your mind and to turn to God and do the works befitting repentance. Now this is important you get this. In the Old Testament, repentance means you stop doing the act and then you go to God. The question is, if I'm able to stop without God, what do I need God for? But it was like that in the Old Covenant so that they can understand the futility of their own human effort. In the New, the Bible says, Change your mind. What does that mean? I mean, this 
terrible, nagging attitude. Grievous. I come to recognize this is wrong. This is not what, how God wants me to live. I recognize that. I acknowledge that. And I repent. Repent means I change my mind. I no longer accept that this is normal and this is good. I change my mind and I turn to God and say, Jesus, help me to manifest your new creation living. Turn it to God. Because when you turn to God, automatically you're turning away from your sin. Luke 15. Let's go to Luke chapter 15. And I, I need to run this up now. Luke chapter 15. Um, verse 13. Luke 15, 13. The story of the... Yeah. This is a young son. In the story of Luke 15. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him to his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pots that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Do you see how terrible this is? Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, when he came to himself, and what I'm saying to you this morning, this afternoon, wherever you are, you need to come to yourself. You need to come to a point of recognition that this behavior is destructive. You can't continue to live like this. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger? Excuse me, what am I doing here? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. We can stop right there. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father. The moment he arose and began going to the father, he left the pig pen. He can have both. Once you start the journey towards God, you are leaving behind everything that hindered you. That's the point. That's the point of your restoration. Going towards God. God cannot forcibly restore us. We have to willingly come to the point and recognition that this is not working. This is not working. Give me verse 20. Luke 15, 20. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. That's the point. That's the point. He left to go to his father. All of a sudden, the lifestyle he was living became a far distant memory to him in the father's presence. My friend, that's the same thing God is offering you right now. I don't know what you have done. I don't know where you have been. I don't know what's casting you down. I don't know what distress you have been in. But the Bible said, it restores your soul. And it only does that because you, of your own volition, call on him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Your restoration with God is instant. The moment you repent and ask him for help, he restores you. Is eagerly waiting to welcome you back home. Young man, young woman, 
You've been away from home much too long. It's time to return home on this Mother's Day. Mark your calendar. Make this the day you choose to return back home to your father's care. He cares for you. He loves you. He's waiting with open arms to receive you back to himself. His, his heart is large enough to welcome you back. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come unto me and let us reason together. Do your sins be as crimson. The Bible says, No, do your sins be as scarlet. They shall be as white as snow. Though they shall be red as crimson, they shall be as wool. That's what God is offering to you right now. And I just want to pray for you. First, for those believers who has been living on the edge. You've been careless in your walk with God because you say, well, I'm under grace. Yes, you're under grace. But living under grace is not a license for the occasion to live in the flesh. It will destroy you. It will bring pain and agony to your life. David is a man of God after God's own heart. But because of his lifestyle, he went through nothing but anguish and pain for a lot of his life. You don't want that. And God does not want that for you. So I want to pray for you now. Say, Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for my brothers and my sisters, wherever they may be, whatever they may have been involved in, that they will today on this Mother's Day make that determination, make a decision to repent, to change their mind and move towards you. Recognizing that whosoever covered their sins will not prosper, but whosoever confesses them will receive and obtain mercy. And so, Father God, we thank you for your restoration, that you will take them and restore them back as if they never sinned. That's who you are. That's what you're all about. Jesus, I thank you for the power of your blood to bring reconciliation, to bring healing, to bring wholeness in the name of Jesus. I thank you for my brother and my sister who today has made that determination to abandon their fleshly, evil, sinful ways and to follow you. Thank you, Father. We honor and we bless you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And now, for you who have never become a Christian before, I don't want to make that assumption that everyone is a believer. Perhaps you have never been born again. For you, it's not a matter of restoration you need. You need a reconciliation. If you've never been born again, I also want to give you the opportunity to be reconciled to your creator, Lord God Almighty. He gave the life of his son just for you. And so now I want to lead you in a very simple prayer. If you just believe with your heart that God sent Jesus to die for your sins and raised him from the dead for your victory, the Bible says you'll be saved. And so just say this after me. Say, Heavenly Father, I want to thank you right now on this Mother's Day for the great plan of salvation. I believe in my heart, the Lord Jesus. I thank you and I confess that you raised him from the dead for my victory. And according to your word, if I make this confession, I shall be saved. And so now, based upon the integrity of your word, I am saved. And I thank you for my salvation in Jesus' name. Amen. If that is you and you said that prayer just now after me, I want to encourage you, if you would just please let us know by sending us an email on our website, www.walkfineusa.org. That is 
O-C-F-A-N-U-S-A dot org. I have to spell it to remember it myself. Hallelujah. God bless you. We'll see you again next week. God bless you.